The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 5 this morning, going to be looking to verses 27 through 30. Uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, as you turn there, Matthew 5 uh, and verse 27. I want to remind you of a verse I brought to our attention two weeks ago, an introduction of this portion of Jesus' sermon uh, from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. Uh, This is the word of God delivered to Samuel, the prophet of God, as he has been sent to commission to anoint the next king of Israel. Uh, He was sent to the city of Bethlehem to the house of Jesse, and the oldest son came forth and Samuel thought, surely this man is the king. He looked like a king. He had the stature of a king, the appearance of a king. And God said to him, Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. He's not the one I've chosen. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That man, that we, even this morning, only can look at the outward appearance. I can look out at you and see a group of finely dressed individuals. You can look up at me and see whatever you make of me. And this morning, that's the extent of the sight of mankind. We often can prejudge and even postjudge wrongly based upon only external appearances. It's God who sees beyond the external. It's God who sees into the very inner being of who you and who I am this morning. Who you are and who I am. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, go back to there this morning, Jesus introduces this section of his teaching with this verse. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has made this very shocking point to all who were in hearing, likely even many of the scribes and Pharisees there in that crowd that had gathered to hear this teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious, the most strict in their living out of any who lived in Jerusalem and in Israel in that day and age. They were the ones who you would look at and say, if anybody would make it to the kingdom of heaven, they would. And Jesus says, your righteousness has to exceed their righteousness if you think you're going to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on in the verses we looked at last week and in the verses we'll look at this morning and in the verses that lie ahead to explain what he means. And to summarize it, what we're seeing and what we will see is that Jesus says the Pharisees, it's not necessarily that they misinterpreted the law as much as it is they only partially interpreted the law. They applied the commandments given in the law that reveals the righteousness of God in an external way only. They they determined if externally I can just abide by some of these commands, I can be justified by my works, justified by my keeping of the commands. And Jesus is bringing us to see that the commands not only speak to the external action, but also to the internal heart. It's not only about what we do and what we don't do. It's also about who we are and the innermost part of our being and our hearts and and the reality that God sees the innermost part of our being this morning and is as concerned about that as He is our external appearances of righteousness. 
And so Jesus accomplishes this with this phraseology. It's in verse 21, and it's in verse 27, and it's in verse 31, and in verse 33, and so on. He says, you have heard it said of old, and then he, he says an Old Testament command, and then he says, but I say unto you. And what he's doing is not creating a new command. He's simply diving further into that Old Testament command that was only partially being interpreted and partially being applied externally only. And Jesus shows us the heart condition of what this command ultimately points us to. And so it's easy if we apply righteousness externally only to sort of mold our lives by these commands and think we can justify ourselves before God. And Jesus is saying, no, the law speaks not only to these severe actions of external sin, but it really speaks just as much so to the heart and to the sinful thoughts and sinful desires in the heart that are just as condemnable before God as the action of the sin. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27. You have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Notice first this morning, according to this scripture, this teaching of Jesus, the sexual sins of your heart are just as condemning before holy God as adultery itself. The sexual sins of your heart, the things that nobody else may see, the things that may not necessarily, in your estimation, affect anyone else, it's internal, the the thoughts and desires of your heart, that God sees... And that, in the eyes of God, is just as condemnable as sin, as is adultery. Adultery was a severe sin with harsh consequences under the law in the Old Testament. You can read Deuteronomy chapter 22, where the consequences of adultery are listed as being death, that both parties in in the, the act of adultery were actually, it was a capital punishment. They were to be put to death. Leviticus 10 and verse, or 20 and verse 10 puts it this way, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It was a severe offense to God and a severe offense against the law of God. And you say, why? Why is it? Why is that so? And it's it's so because God, God holds a very high view of the marriage covenant an extremely high view of the marriage covenant. What God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And God does not take those words lightly. What God has ordained and put together, and when two people come together as one flesh in the eyes of God, one man, one woman, in a lifelong covenant that is called marriage, it is a serious act in the eyes of God. And God takes it very seriously when that commitment, that covenant, that union, that oneness has been perverted, has been broken, has been brought to an end. The the covenant of marriage was the foundation for even human society. Uh, The family unit being found there within this marriage covenant union. The the, the covenant of marriage was a picture even of God's covenant with His people. And the oneness of God with His people. Marriage is a big deal in the eyes of holy God. It has been created and ordained by God. It is a holy union that is not to be discarded. That is not to be broken. Adultery in that very act is the breaking of that marriage covenant. And so God says the one who committed adultery under the consequences of the Old Testament law, they were to actually be put to death. It was a severe consequence to elevate the, the, the priority and the, the loftiness of what marriage is, what marriage was in the eyes of God in that day and age, and even speaks into our day and age to do so as well. God takes marriage seriously. We'll look at it next week even when we talk about marriage and divorce, that God takes marriage seriously. The Pharisees prided themselves on the fact that they, in their estimation, by their definition and terminologies, were not adulterers. They took pride, great pride in that. They would condemn adulterers, as we see even in the Gospel of John, and that woman caught in adultery, thrown at Jesus' feet. We'll look at that next week as well. They condemned adulterers, all the while ignoring the sexual sins in their own heart, in their own life, that God saw, that God knew, that were condemnable as sin in His eyes. They prided themselves, well, I haven't done that. And all the while, they'd actually created a little mechanism by which they, in a way, could commit adultery, but under the the legality of the laws given in the Old Testament, they would merely divorce and remarry in order to commit adultery. And again, I'm not going to highlight that right now. It ties right into these next few verses we'll look at next week in verses 31 and 32. And so we will address that rather not next week, but two weeks from now. Next week we'll be centered on BBS. But two weeks from now we'll look to verses 31 and 32. The Pharisees prided themselves in their own righteousness that by their external definition of adultery, they didn't do it. They found a way around it even. And Jesus is cutting to the very heart. And He's telling them, I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. Now don't hear my words nor the words of Jesus wrongly and think, well, if I'm lusting in my heart, I might as well commit adultery because it's the same thing. No, it's not the same thing. There's a great difference in the act of adultery and in the act of lust within a heart and it's in the earthly consequences, right? Okay, lust in uh, your heart, we're all guilty. If anybody wants to be honest of seeing something in, in lust, getting a hold of our heart. Okay, the act of adultery has more severe life consequences, does it not? It can ruin families, it ruins marriage, it's, it marriages, it affects children. Um, the, the ramifications from that sin are far greater 
than the lust of the heart. What Jesus is saying and what I'm saying here is understand both are sin, both are condemnable in the eyes of God, and both are worthy of an eternity in hell. All sin is sin, and if you break one tenet of the law, you're guilty of it all, James tells us. And so realize that that just because there is a a differentiation in, in the act and consequences of adultery, what Jesus is saying here is the lust of your heart, that's just as much sin as adultery is. No, no, there's not a, 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 an equality in the sense of the act of, of how wicked the act is. They're both wicked, but there is a greater wickedness in the act than there is in the heart thought or the heart intent that isn't acted upon. You don't hear me wrong, but hear me truly. You hear the words of Jesus to say, when you lust after a woman in your heart, Jesus says you have committed adultery with her in your heart. Those are, that's a powerful word. That ought to be a convicting word, especially in the day and age in which we live. What does it mean to lust after a woman in your heart? To to lust compared to an unintentional look, perhaps, that could not be helped because of the broken, fallen world in which we live in, the way we're bombarded with all sorts of stuff. When does lust become, or a look become lust? I think a good distinction would be the unintentional glance compared to the glaze. Um, when, when you unintentionally are tempted because Satan is throwing something in your face that you were not looking for and that you did not seek, and, and in that temptation, instead of immediately turning away and immediately refocusing, you, 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 the, the desire of your heart, the lust of your heart, tells you to keep looking or tells you to look again. And that, that's the difference between the, the glance, the, the glance and, and the, the lust, the unintentional look and the, the lust that can creep in to a person's heart and to a person's life. That's the difference between where, where what isn't sin and is merely temptation becomes sinful, becomes even adultery being committed in the heart. And you have to realize God sees the heart. God doesn't just see the external action. God sees the heart. God knows the difference between the unintentional look of temptation and the the, the gazing upon it as a, a means of lusting. God sees. God knows. God judges. And the warning that Jesus is giving here is no matter what people say, no matter what this world says, the, the lusting after another woman in your heart, or it could flip the shoe and we could speak of the, the woman lusting after a man, it applies both ways. And when your heart is set on something in your thinking and in your looking and in your desires, even though it is not acted upon, God sees that, and God says it is sinful in His eyes. You know, we live in a sex-crazed world. And we are always a people who try to justify our sins and our iniquity. We, we, we try to convince ourselves and society even convinces us that it's okay and that it's even right and often even that it's been a beneficial. The world wants us to think that we can look at whatever we want. As long as we're not hurting another person, their rule, then we're good and it's okay. Of course, the most obvious application to this is pornography. It has infiltrated our culture, our 
lives, our families, our young generation in a way like has never happened before within human history because of the advancement of technology. Even in our you know, modern era, just going back a few years, it used to be you had to go to get it. You had to look somebody in the eye to purchase it. You, you had to be risk being caught at a place that many would not want to be caught. And that alone was a prevention. That alone kept many from venturing down a pathway they ought not to, down that pathway of sin, of lust. And nowadays, with the Internet, all of those hindrances have been removed. And it has bombarded so many lives, not only the lives of lost people, but Christian men and Christian women and families and teenagers especially that are so bombarded with this that I must address it. I know it's an odd subject to address on a Sunday morning, but as we, as we look to this passage and as we think of our culture and as we hear the statistics that are given, how can I not address it? Realize even secular studies are showing the devastating consequences of this, consequences of it. It's not that, that you, you can't buy into the lie, well, this isn't, Oh, this isn't sin, that this is okay, that this is something that won't affect me. Even secular studies are showing that it is detrimental to a person. It's detrimental to real relationships. Over 56% of divorces on a study, it was listed that one or two or both of the partners in that marriage struggled with pornography addiction. That's a large part of many marriages not being what they ought to be. As all sin, it promises to make better what it ultimately destroys, what it ultimately hurts. 10 to 30% of the internet traffic, more than Netflix and Amazon and Twitter combined, is pornographic material. Once the Reddit was asked of a person involved in, in technology, the question was asked, when is my child old enough to have a phone? And someone wisely answered, whenever you think they're old enough to view pornography. Parents of teenagers that have their head in the sand and think, oh, never, not mine. No, you don't know. You'd never give a book that would have that in it to somebody that's your child, but you give a phone that has access. Over 90% of boys, over 60% of young girls have been exposed to pornography before age 18. I could go on with all the statistics, but, but you realize it is an epidemic in our day and age. And hear me, it is warping the hearts. It's warping the souls of so many men, women, teenage boys, teenage girls. Warping is what it does. Sin distorts and perverts and warps what God has designed as good and as God-glorifying even. It is sin against yourself, realize. It affects the mind like a a drug even would affect the, the mind. It affects a healthy sexual relationship with one's spouse. It, it, it sets unrealistic expectations and, and pressures. It's a sin against your spouse, whether you're currently married or, you know, in the future hope to be married. It's a sin against them. God says it's committing adultery in your heart. It's, it's cheating against that one that you have covenanted yourself to, that you have covenanted your eyes to. It's a sin against God, first and foremost, above all else. But God sees it, and it is not glorifying to Him, and He says it's wicked. And he says he sees the heart and you've committed adultery in that lust. 
adultery in your heart. Secondly, notice in these next two verses, you must take drastic measures to guard your heart from sexual temptation. Given, given the fact that it is so, we're so easily beset by it, we're so easily tempted, prevalently tempted in this day and age, it's so easily accessible in a way that it never has been before, you must guard your heart and guard your life from this sort of temptation. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. You must come to realize and see sin as a cancer. Sin is not going to benefit you. Sin is not going to make that part of your relationship, husband and wife, it's not going to make it better. Don't buy into the lie of Satan, to the deceptions of a, a fallen world around us. Secular studies, again, are proving that false. But realize also, God's Word is true. And what God says of sin is that it will never benefit. It destroys and it wrecks. It's a cancer. It spreads and it overtakes and it destroys and it kills. And hear me, it requires chemo and radiation and surgery. You, you can't just think, oh, it's not a big deal. It won't affect me. You can't ignore it. You must deal with it. You must get treatment for it. You must do an operation is what Jesus says. If your right eye offends you, causes you to sin, pluck it out. Cast it from you. Better go to heaven with one eye than to spend eternity in hell. Your right hand causes you to sin. Cut it off and cast it from you. Better to go to heaven with one hand than to spend eternity in hell. Now, some throughout church history have actually taken Jesus' words here quite literalistically. I'll let you read about Origen, for instance, and others. And they have physically mutated, mutated their bodies in hopes of cleansing themselves of lust. And what they found is it didn't work. <laughs> like, if you got one eye in here, you're just as capable of lusting as I do with two eyes. You got one hand in here, you're just as capable of lusting as me with two hands. Okay? That, that Jesus' words here are not meant to be taken literalistically. We, we should literally take them as figurative speech. They're representing the, the eyes that see and the hands that do. What Jesus is saying is a hyperbole. He's saying in an exaggerated language to emphasize the strength of this, we must take this thing seriously and we must be willing to do whatever it takes to bring an end to it within our life, within our hearts. It calls for drastic action. To you, D.A. Carson's word on this verse. He says, what does Jesus mean? Just this. We are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibblings of it uh, around the edges. We are to hate it, to crush it, and to dig it out. Paul words it this way in Colossians 3, 5, and 6. Therefore, put to death, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, with it, which is idolatry, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. It is a sin that is not to be taken lightly. It is a sin that's meant to be dealt with seriously and even drastically. To rid our hearts and to rid our lives of the sin of sexual lust. And so I ask, are you, what, what are you doing? 
What are you doing currently, this morning even, to fight against sexual lust? Don't say, oh, I'm not tempted by it. You're a liar and you're deceived and the truth is not in you. Some of John's words. You are tempted by it. Unless you have a psychological, sociological sort of handicap issue, you are, if you're a normal man in this room and have blood flowing through your veins, and even ladies, a high percentage of ladies as well, even uh, generally speaking, not as um, drawn by sight to lust, but many, many are. It's not just a male issue. It's not just a female issue. It's not an old issue or a younger issue. All, all who are in here who have a sinful nature, but what are you doing to guard your life Guard your heart from lusting. Are you nourishing a healthy sexual relationship with your spouse? If you're married, just read it. I don't want to elaborate on it because I know we've got a mixed group in here of younger kids. But, but we often talk so bad about it. I do have to talk about it a little bit because all we often do at the church is talk about the taboos and the um, things that God says ought not to be and we seldom hit on the point of what God says ought to be, what is good and what is glorifying in His eyes is God is the one who created intimacy. God is the one who designed human anatomy. God is the one who created Adam and Eve and He put them in that union of husband and wife and He said it is good and it is beneficial for that intimacy to be within that covenant of marriage, within that foundation. That, that, that is a good and God-glorifying and honorable thing in His eyes. That is what is good. That is what is even beneficial and most enjoyable for human satisfaction, for you, for me, in that context of a, a marriage relationship. God has designed it that way. What God has designed is good. Satan has perverted and Satan has distorted. And that's where we get all of what we call sexual immoralities that we so often harp upon. But here at 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 5, Paul says, Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another except for consent for a time. That you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Right? Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4 says the marriage, uh, marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed undefiled. The marriage bed is undefiled. God has designed the desires that are given that we're talking about. He's designed them. He's placed them in the human heart. There is a good, God-glorifying way, an honorable way, a commendable way in the eyes of God to fulfill those desires. And it's only found within the context of a husband and a wife, one man and one woman, and a lifelong covenant, a union, a oneness that God has put together. And outside of that, it is sin. And it brings destruction. Are you safeguarding relationships in your life from sexual temptation? Are you safeguarding your workplace and the relationships of co-workers and the relationships of other people that aren't your spouse? Don't, don't ever let your heart become more attached to a person than you do to your spouse. That's dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. And it's not always physical attraction. More often than not, it's emotional connection that leads down that pathway. 
that there's a, a, a friendship, that all of a sudden there's more of a, a longing and desire for that conversation than there is with your spouse. Whenever that happens, hear me, warning, warning, danger, danger, Master Robinson, you're entering into dangerous territory. Most of Affairs that are committed, it's, it's more than a physical attraction. It begins with a, a rocky relationship in the marriage, but then all of a sudden there's more confiding in this other person that develops into more of an emotional connection. Are you safeguarding your heart from that? Are you on the lookout for those relationships and realizing when that happens, I need to get help, I need to get counseling, I need to, to work on this relationship with my spouse so that it, it is what it ought to be and those things aren't temptations that will draw me into great sin. Are you careful about what you watch? Are you careful about what you let in to your eyes that, that brings the temptation? even may not be sought after, but what do you see, what you see, you can't unsee what you've seen. I wish God designed within our minds, maybe back here right behind the ear, a little button and we can just whoop, erase, delete button and, and it's deleted and we no longer have any memory of it. Wouldn't that be lovely, but that's not how it works. TVs, movies, what's so common and permissible even that used to be unthought of ever being aired over a television or a movie or whatever it may be. I read of David Robinson, didn't really know his name before reading about him, but he was MB, an MVP basketball player, um, played for the San Antonio Spurs. Anybody know this guy? Got a couple of you basketball fans. Did you know this about this man? I just read this. I haven't called him and asked him and verified it or watched any video evidence of it. But it said of him, he was a Christian man, he said whenever the cheerleaders would come out onto the court, that, that he would actually stare down at a steep. And he did so, he, he said, for two reasons, to honor and respect his wife and to guard himself from temptation. Where is that type of man in this day and age? to look and to lust in the eyes of God is to commit adultery. We can apply it to commit fornication within your heart. A great psalm, verse in Psalms to memorize, Psalm 101 and verse 3. I like it in old King James. It's the way I memorized it. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. It shall not cleave to me. Or I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. Memorize that verse. And when the moment of temptation comes, quote it as Jesus quoted verses in the hour of temptation. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I, I hate those works. I don't want to be a part of those things. They're wicked in the eyes of God. It is great immorality in the eyes of God. It, it leads me to sin in my own heart before God. It will not cleave unto me. Fourth and final question, are you filtering your internet and your calling? Well, that slows my phone down, and that, that, that's a hassle to deal with, and you got to, you know, it blocks this and blocks that. Jesus says, pluck your eye out and cut your arm off if you have to. 
if temptation becomes a besetting sin, you must take steps to remove that temptation. If you're a parent with a teenager who's got a phone and they've got unrestricted access to the worldwide internet, do you realize what unrestricted access means? I think you do, and you just don't want to confess it and admit to it or think your child could ever view such a thing. But hear me, in this day and age, they are. Are you being wise and walking in wisdom to to utilize the good of technology but, but filter it in such a way where you remove the bad from it? There are ways and means of accomplishing this. And no, there's not, there's unfortunately not one I would say is without Without frustration would be the word way I'd word it. You do have to be a little tech savvy at times or get help and walk through how to set it up and how to lock it down because kids are smart and they can get around everything. If you ever need help with that, Custodia is one that I have used. Custodio, rather. It's Q-U-S-T-O-D-I-O. Norton Family Virus. You know, Norton Antivirus. They've got a family filter that's pretty decent. If there's somebody in here who is struggling with pornography, I would highly beg of you, confess that to somebody and get an accountability partner in that. Covenant Eyes is an, a great app and monitoring system that does more than just block. It's actually designed for a person who's really wanting to overcome the sin in their life and get accountability in it. And there's, there, there's a means that they actually help you walk through and discipleship even to overcome that temptation in your life. And there's some of you in here, if the statistics are even partially true, there's a number in here who need that. You say, well, that costs money. Come to me. We can take care of the money side of things. If you're really serious about saying, I want to cut my arm off or pluck my eye out to get rid of this in my life because I know it's a sin against God. I know it's a sin against my, my spouse. I know it's 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 destructing and devastating for me and I don't want it anymore. If you're really at that point and you hear the words of Jesus and you realize it's not just a great thing because you're not out there doing all of this all on the weekends but privately inside your heart you've got these lusts in the eyes of God. It is sinful. Sinful. Close with a question from a good old Puritan, right? They cut right to the heart. Puritan William Grinnell asked this question, What lust is so sweet or profitable that it is worth burning in hell for? What lust is so sweet or so profitable that it is worth burning in hell for? Better to go to heaven with one hand and with one eye and to spend an eternity in hell. Heavenly Father, we come to You and we do pray that You would be at work convicting where conviction is needed. Lord, there's not a person in this room who can come in completely innocent and righteous in this area, not in this fallen, wicked, wicked world in which we live. Lead us all even now in confession and repentance and restoration and forgiveness. Lord, if there be any in here who needs help, who needs accountability, who needs to take a, a, a 
further step to rid their lives of temptation. I pray you'd give them the heart to do that, the boldness to step forward to do that even now in the service during the invitation. Lord, more than all, if there be one in here under the weight and misery and burden of their sin and they've never turned to Christ and they've never ever experienced what that song so wonderfully sang about, the blood that washes our sins away, pray they'd come to Him this morning and find, Lord, no matter our sin, Your grace is more, Your mercy is more. They'd turn and find that mercy this morning in Christ. I ask this in Jesus' precious name.